What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today I have not one, but two guests to discuss their fantastic book that they wrote together. All right. And it is Erez Yoeli and Moshe Hoffman. All right. And I really, really, really hope I pronounced their names correctly. I've been, I've been practicing and everything, but anyways, they wrote just an absolutely phenomenal book, uh, a book that I really, really enjoyed. And it's called hidden games. So this book is largely about game theory, but, uh, these guys, they bring in some new perspectives and unique angles. And we discuss all sorts of topics from the book, but real quick, one of the reasons that I'm so interested in game theory is because it's, it's like they discuss in this book. It's a large part of our human behavior and our human reactions, how we, you know, make decisions, how we talk to other people, how we, you know, try to, you know, pursue our own incentives. Like it's really, really interesting stuff, right? Like game theory, you know, it, it came from, you know, trying to figure out who was going to use nukes and all these other things. Right. But I was more interested when I saw, you know, just like the, the polarization and the way people talk to each other, like on the internet and everything. I'm like, are there like things going on underneath that we're not really paying attention to? And that's where game theory comes in. So in this conversation, I, I talked with the, uh, these two guys about so many different topics you know, from their book and why this, this stuff matters, but it's kind of interesting too, because, you know, they're in the book, they're really discussing game theory and their, their different theories around why we evolve this way, why we do what we do. But me, for those of you who know me, I'm always trying to see how does this apply to our daily lives? Right. And, you know, it takes, it takes a little bit, takes a little bit of time, but I finally get them to like join in that conversation. Uh, because for example, when I was canceled back in 2019, uh, I was very confused. There seemed to be a lot of irrationality. For example, uh, what we discuss in this conversation is, you know, when I am, or any of us are doing you know, kind things for others, right? You don't know our motives, right? Am I doing it? Am I being altruistic because I genuinely want to help others? I'm doing it with no selfish motives or am I doing it to get something in return? This is a big deal to me because it's something I learned about when I got sober. I, I learned not to be self-seeking. But what I ask these guys about is we we often infer someone else uh, someone else's motives and we're terrible at doing so. So for example, when someone does something nice and you say, you're only doing this nice thing because, so it really like puts a monkey wrench in some game theory aspects. So anyways, I pry that out of them. We talk about some real world scenarios. We also talk about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine because they've written some uh, uh, stories or um, thought pieces around this lately. But anyways, it's a really interesting conversation. These guys are super, super awesome. And, and I love talking about this stuff. So make sure you head down to the description. Make sure you follow uh, these two guys over on Twitter. Most importantly, grab a copy of Hidden Games. Phenomenal book. Some of it goes over my head, but for the most part, it's pretty easy to grasp once they start to get into examples and explain the different uh, experiments that they do with uh, game theory. All right, so check that out. And before we uh, get started with the conversation, if you're not yet, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. Uh, not only do I love chatting with all of you and getting book recommendations and all that, but that way you don't miss any upcoming episodes or anything else that's coming up, like, you know, some of the 
projects I'm working on, writing and all that kind of stuff. All right. Anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with uh, Moshe and Arez about their brand new book, Hidden Games. All right. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you both doing today? Doing well. Yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, we're here to talk about your awesome new book called Hidden Games. But before we dive into all of the wonderful stuff in there, uh, let's take a moment. Can you both give me a little bit of your background? I guess we'll start with Mo. Well, uh, okay. I was raised an Orthodox Jew. Um, and I guess at age 15 or so, I, I stopped believing, uh, you know, reading Richard Dawkins and those kind of folks. Um, uh, went and studied uh, at the University of Chicago. Uh, felt really great to be surrounded by other intellectuals and get a pretty solid education. Um, there I learned economics and in particular game theory. I, I continued for a PhD. Also learned some experimental economics approaches and, and some psychology and uh, philosophy and stuff like that. Um, and kind of from the beginning, I, I had this uh, goal to understand human social behavior using a mix of like an evolutionary approach with like game theory tools from economics. And, you know, I, I guess I pretty quickly added to the mix experimental methods from, from psychology mm. and uh, econ. Met Ares in grad school and kind of uh, pitched him on the idea. And, and uh, pretty soon thereafter, we started doing research together and pitched a class at MIT on a topic and mm. that's been going pretty well. And eventually that turned into this, this book and this conversation. Awesome. And how about you, Erez? Yeah, my, my path was less direct than Mo's. I, I started out as a musician. I was a classical percussionist um, and then decided I didn't want to spend all day in a practice room by myself. So I um, transitioned to being a more standard student. This was in college. Uh, took my first econ class and I really liked it and kept taking it. Next thing I knew I was done with all the PhD classes too. So uh, it was not my way to getting a PhD. Um, unlike Mo, I wasn't super focused on like human social behavior or something like that. I just kind of liked the incentives approach. Mm. Um, but Mo started talking to me about stuff I'd never heard about before, even in my classes. He'd, um, he, he'd tell me about these different applications of game theory to animal behavior that I was like, wait a minute, this is actually interesting. Up until now, all the game theory I'd learned wasn't that interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Tell me more. And, and we, we started the discussions like that. And, and they also started to overlap with some of the research I was doing around pro-social behavior. Um, economists tend to have this approach where, where they kind of take people's preferences as given and, and they go from there. The, 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 the fact that the preferences are quirky isn't something you question so much. You just kind of take them as they are and then uh, work with them as is. And can you give us that? You want to give Go an ahead. example of that? Because I think it might be relevant for a later discussion too. Sure. We might as well jump ahead. So, sure. so uh, an example of this might be something like um, a classic example, dating all the way back to like 1989 papers uh, from Jim Androni is warm glow, which is the idea that people don't uh, necessarily give out of a desire to uh, have an impact per se on the public good in question, be it uh, mm -hmm. a charity, uh, the radio station they like, uh, you know, the, the quality of, of the local public schools or something like that, but rather they give because it gives them a good feeling. Mm -hmm. Now, 
an economist would, would just say, oh, okay, that's how the preferences work. Got it. Let me write down a utility function, which is a mathematical formulation that basically like in a very simple way characterizes that. Mm-hmm. And, and I was used to that approach. And then Mo would come to me and say, wait, but why does it work that way? And are you sure it always <laughs> works that way? And I'd be like, yeah, of course, we don't ask that question. Why are you asking so many questions? And, and eventually, like, I started to see why this was interesting. And he really pulled me in. So that's, that's how we got where we are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as you and I were talking a little bit before, uh, you know, we started recording, like, um, I really got interested in the human behavior and everything when I was canceled in 2019. I just want to understand, right? I want to understand, like, human irrationality really too. And I think my first introduction to game theory was, I believe through Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets. And I had no idea what it was, never heard of it, you know, started to, you know, research around. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, how it's used like when dealing with other nations and wars and stuff, which we could talk about in a little bit because there's stuff going on. Um, but yeah, I was really interested in how, you know, we interact with one another. And and yeah, even with what you're discussing, my first experience, I remember being in Alcoholics Anonymous when I got sober and they teach you to be like selfless and help others and everything. And I'm like, but wait, if I'm helping others, is that like truly selfless because I'm doing it to help myself and all these like weird little things. But anyways, I guess what I'm getting at is uh, like for the average person, right? For the non-academic, non-economist, non-person who's like making uh, decisions about war with other nations, how does game theory like apply to the everyday person and why should they care about this topic? You know what I mean? Yeah, Mo, you want to go first? No, I'll let you take this one. <laughs> gotcha. So I think actually for the everyday person, there's kind of two ways you can think of game theory being used. One is if you're trying yourself to carefully think through a situation, you could learn a little bit of game theory and like try to use some of the lessons of that to to make a better decision. Mm -hmm. But there's a second way that game theory gets used, which is to understand why your intuitions, your moral intuitions, your, your ethical intuitions, your intuitions around your sense of justice, your aesthetic sense, your, your sense of rights, you know, the, the things you kind of take for granted uh, mm. about your own psychology and the way you see the world, why it is the way that it is. And it turns out that game theory can help us uh, provide insight on that too. Our book kind of focuses on that second set of applications, the, the more like understand yourself, understand the people around you kind of applications. It may not be so much a how to use game theory in deliberative strategic yeah. thinking, yeah. Uh, but it's more about understanding. With, with, with some exceptions. So uh, in our chapter on altruism, um, we highlight a little bit of um, Eris's other work uh, where he applies some of the insights from, from these game theory models to help actually promote more effective pro-social behavior. And so uh, you know, he has a he, he has a TED talk that covers that. If you if you Google his name and TED, you'll find it. Um, and uh, we have like, you know, we summarize like the basic points and like, a, you know, a simple checklist that he's developed and been using with with firms that and, and nonprofits uh, in order to like use these insights for practical purposes. Another application for practical purposes is like the chapter on justice where we talk about where our, where our sense of justice, um, in particular, retributive justice comes from. Um, there's there's some utility in 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 that you can apply those insights to kind of gain a clearer sense of what the cost and benefits are of, of having retribution and, and punitive behavior like sanctioning Putin for, for invading Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so 
you know, for instance, we spun off some ideas from that in a political piece uh, that came out yesterday, which applies, the, you know, the clarity of thought that you get with with some of this analysis in order to, um, you know, better better understand what's what's the most appropriate reaction, you know, in strategic settings like with Putin and Ukraine, and you know what what think through a little bit more clearly the costs and benefits. But but like Eris said, um, you know, the primary goal of the book isn't really to give prescriptions. It's not really to give advice. Uh, you know, yeah. obviously, like that is a, a common use of game theory and that's valuable. But the the primary goal is really to to use game theory as like a lens to understand otherwise puzzling features of human behavior and to just kind of, you know, gain a little bit of, of clarity and insight on why people do the weird things they do, why we have the weird beliefs and preferences we have. Yeah. So ha- have you both seen like uh, just um, like seeing the the world through this like kind of lens? Does it does it help make people seem, I don't know, like a little bit more rational or they make sense a little bit more because that's that's one of the reasons I started trying to learn so much about human be- behavior, especially like evolutionary psychology. I'm like, okay, now that I understand why we do what we do, like it helps me not just think that people are like jerks or like maybe there's a reason behind this decision making and all that other stuff. Does it help at all? Or do you guys still like log into Twitter and just say everybody's insane and nothing makes sense? You know? Yeah. You want me to start this one or you got it? Yeah, you got this one. Um well, I think I think it very much does in many ways. Like there are a lot of all sorts of strange things. Like like Eros was mentioning with with um you know the sense of warm glow. Why does our sense of warm glow when we when we give to charities work the way it does and is so inefficient? The game theory can can help us explain why our sense of of warm glow, why our sense of giving has has these like weird features where it's insensitive to like impact. Um, mm-hmm. And and so that that's you know an example of a puzzle that we, we cover in the book. And and I think you know once you hear the explanation, you're like, oh yeah, obviously. Like, yeah. and I think, I think you do get that a lot in evolutionary psychology. Like, you know, when you, when you look at the peacock's tail or evolutionary biology, you look at the peacock's tail and it's like, you know, once you hear the cost of signaling story, you're like, yeah, I don't like, wow. It's nuts that it took, you know, scientists so long to figure that out. Cause it's like, so, you know, it fits so perfectly. Yeah. Um, and so you, you do get, you do get some of that. And that's, you know, that, that aha mo- moment is quite nice. Um, w- with that said, I think it also kind of, um, helps us hone in on things that we would otherwise take for granted and, and highlights what's puzzling and helps us see, you know, the next questions that scientists can ask that, that pushes, you know, science forward. Um, you, you know, it's really hard to develop good theories without kind of knowing what doesn't fit our common understanding already. And so, so you know, if we have this like clear theoretical lens, it, it kind of tells us what doesn't fit that and that kind of begs for like future things to ask. So a mm. good example of that is, um, you know, when Darwin developed his, his uh, ideas about natural selection, he then was super puzzled by things like the peacock tail. Um, he was super puzzled by things like, um, you know, altruism in animals, like uh, bees sacrificing themselves to, to help others, you know, protect their, their um, uh, beehive. And like, you know, he wouldn't have seen those puzzles so clearly if he didn't have, uh, you know, natural selection as like his baseline model. Mm. And so, so I think it's the same with us. Like I'm able, one thing I do on Twitter, which is maybe why, why you mentioned this is like, I try to highlight all sorts of puzzling things, either that I'm seeing in the news or I'm seeing in other people's tweets. And I think that one reason why I'm able to kind of highlight those puzzles is because um, there's kind of like uh, a baseline model of things that wouldn't be puzzling. Um, and, and mm. it, you know, I, I think that that does add some clarity. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. 
How about you, Eric? It's when you're when you're looking at the world through this lens. I mean, when you work with Mo, it's hard to beat him to it. Uh, he's <laughs> he's really good at, at seeing those puzzles, um, and it's one of the the things that makes it really really fun. Is he's got this tendency of really flipping flipping the world on its head, flipping your perspective. You're you're just going along seeing the situation. You know, maybe it's something that Putin is doing, you know, in the news right now or something like that. Mm. And then Mo will have a way of asking you a question about it. And you're like, wait, um, wait, wait. I, I was just like thinking that was normal. And it's totally weird. Um, but yeah, sometimes I, I agree with him. Like sometimes, sometimes what the game theory does is it basically allows you to see very, very starkly suddenly, this is a behavior that doesn't make sense given my model of the world. Um, and sometimes it takes somebody to just ask the question in the right way to do that. Uh, so it kind of does both. It kind of gives you that clarity. And for a lot of the things that you've already kind of had an explanation for, you're like, aha, I know that's about common knowledge. Or aha, mm -hmm. I know that's a, a coordination thing. Or, oh, okay, there's there's some uh, persuasion motive and some private information here. You know, like you get these these jargony words in your mind that that suddenly pop up every time you see the phenomenon associated with them. But then some of the time it's like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get where that's coming from. Whereas before I would have taken it for granted. So yeah. Go ahead. So what? Oh, if you want to move on. No, no, no. Go ahead. Expand on that. Well, uh, one thing um, we, we did from like day one, the first time we, we, we taught our class together, um, is we really had this focus on puzzles. And, and you see it you see it in our book too. Like the first few pages of the book are like laying out a bunch of puzzles that are like, you know, not well understood within the social sciences. And, and like the goal of the book is to then later address them. And in each chapter, before we present a model, we start with a set of puzzles. And so, so we kind mm -hmm. of really orient ourselves around this, like, you know, there are, there are things that are puzzling and then like, okay, what's a parsimonious explanation? How can game theory help with that? And, and we did that in the class too. Like every single class has, you know, three or four puzzles and then a model that tries to explain it. And I, I don't know, we just, we find that to be both a, a fruitful way of doing science because it kind of orients like, you know, you to look for like theories that have a lot of bang for the, uh, uh, bank for the buck um mm -hmm. and, and it, it also you know it keeps you somewhat grounded in like things that are kind of relevant to the world or, or, or help us move science forward but it also i think people find it interesting so uh you know our students often say that the puzzles are like the most fascinating part of the class and you know we had we had book editors uh you know when we were first pitching the book who were like don't write a book about game theory. Just write a book about your puzzle. Like that'll sell so much more. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the original title that was pitched to us was the book of why. Oh yeah, I think that I think a book ended up coming out with that name or something like that. It has all these yeah, weird the So yeah. so you got went good. But um, but yeah, like so that's that's one of the things I I loved about the book. Like uh, I always say this. Like I you know I read so many books every single year, but books that have me just asking questions. You know what I mean? Or make me leave the book with even more questions like those are some of my my favorites right and i loved all the little uh, you know puzzles are just like why do we do the things you know we do or how to look um at decisions other people are making but something i've i've noticed and this is one of the reasons i'm interested in the topic is it seems like uh there's a lot of people who assume that the the people they disagree with are like calculated making these like strategic decisions to just be a jerk, especially like with political polarization and stuff like that. Right. So I guess my question is with, with some of the, the game theory of the different models you guys go through in the book, like, do you think the majority of people are doing some of these things consciously, or they're just 
naturally part of human nature. Like I'm, I'm really interested in like self-deception. You guys have like a chapter on like motivated reasoning and all that. And it feels like the majority of people don't realize what they're doing and how they're behaving. But I'm curious if you think that people are a little bit more aware than what I think they are, you know? You want to go first this time? Sure. Um, I would say that we're never counting on people calculating um, and, and being conscious of the game that's going on. And we think that most of the time they probably aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, they might be, you know, when somebody uh, gives and we talk about giving as being about reputation, people do have some sense of that. And some of the time they might be sort of consciously aware of the fact that if they do this good deed, people will notice and they'll look good. Or if we're talking about, um, you know, more political stuff, people might have a sense that the person in front of them, their motives are somewhat somewhat impure in some sense. You know, they're not just trying to find out the truth, but they're trying to convince you of something. Mm. And, and people are like pretty good at intuiting that or or, or even knowing when they themselves are engaged in that behavior. Um, so they, they may have some sense of it. But for the most part, we're at least assuming if you can't get the phenomenon without people being aware of it, it's probably not going to be one we'll focus on in this book. Mm, Gotcha. So uh, um, just to maybe maybe add to that a bit, I I totally agree that conscious awareness isn't necessary. Um, uh, And maybe you slightly misspoke in that last sentence. I think you meant uh, we don't need people to be aware of it. Um, uh, Yeah. Uh, So so I, I, I... I agree. Like in all of our models, like sometimes people are somewhat aware, but but we definitely don't rely on that. And, you know, in the first few chapters of the book, we kind of lay out why it's not necessary and why you can still get people to kind of behave somewhat optimally or consistent with game theory models, even without conscious awareness. Um, with that said, it raises the interesting question of like why we focus so much on whether people are behaving strategically in, in a conscious sense. Like, like, like you said, we often denigrate others for being consciously calculating. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's an interesting question. Maybe just to highlight that question a little bit more, you know, we kind of share the perspective, which I presume many in your audience are, are aware of from like the selfish gene that like, you know, everything, everything we do has to at some level be selfish. Cause like, you know, we, we, we learn things and, and we evolved and evolution and learning processes are inherently, uh, you know, hill climbing inherently, you know, the optimization processes that they're, 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 there's they're maximizing something and that's you know almost by definition going to be like a selfish criteria um mm-hmm. you know in the, in the case of the selfish gene what they're you know as the title indicates there you know you animals end up with traits and behaviors that selfishly optimize you know reproduction of the genes that code for those traits and behaviors that's that's dawkins basic thesis and and we largely share that thesis although i guess our book also lays out uh some of the the foundational research on uh, reinforcement learning and cultural evolution, which relied less on genes selfishly replicating, although we cover that a bit and, and some of our stuff might be that, you know, these learning processes and, and uh, social imitation processes are selfishly replicating in a, in a slightly different way. Um, you know, uh, and we kind of, we talk about instead of biological fitness there, those are kind of optimizing something else. Like we, we talk about primary rewards, but anyhow, it's, it's pretty similar. And in that it's selfish um, in that we're going to end up learning to do things that help us succeed. Um, mm. uh, and, and we, we won't consciously be aware that that's why we're doing it, but you know, it's hard to imagine humans learning to do something if it doesn't have that effect. Um, and so that raises the question of, of, well, if everybody's doing that, then why, why is it then a valid criticism? You know, like you're, you're not doing it any more or less than I am. 
And and yet it is like, uh, you know, if it, I, I will point at you and say like, oh, come on, you're only giving to that charity to uh, like to show off like, you know, and so so why is that a valid critique? Um, and we talk a little bit about this in the book, like, you know, we have a chapter on modesty, which kind of says, why, why do we consider it good to be a little bit more humble, to not, you know, to give anonymously to, to um, you know, have your uh, good deeds and your traits a little bit more subtle. And we talk about it a little bit elsewhere in our research. And we originally had a book chapter plan on it, but we ran out of space and time on principle of behavior more broadly, why we kind of um, think it's good for people to, to cooperate without thinking about, you know, the strategic payoffs, uh, uh, you know, without consciously deliberating about the costs and benefits. And, and you know, the basic, the basic argument that we give, um, which somewhat dates back to Frank, uh, Robert Frank, um, is this idea that if people give in a calculating way or if people do good deeds um, or all their traits, they're kind of wearing them on their sleeve. Um, uh, so, so those are maybe two separate phenomena, but there's a relationship. One is your traits are in your sleeve. You're not being modest. Another is if you're giving in a very calculated way. Both those things kind of suggest that you're, you're consciously thinking through uh, the, and pursuing these kind of social benefits. Uh, that if you do it consciously as opposed to non-consciously, um, you're going to be less reliable. You're only going to do it when it has those social benefits. Mm -hmm. And so, so we kind of think like, yes, everybody's selfish in a non-conscious sense, but the moment you make it conscious, it makes you less trustworthy. And so mm -hmm. that kind of creates this motive to kind of make it, to, to suppress it a little bit and, and, and be less, less strategic about it, even if it's going on at a more subconscious level. Um, and it also then makes, makes me denigrate you if I see you being a little bit more conscious or strategic about it, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, uh, that, that actually brings something to mind because this is something that I think about regularly, right? And you guys discuss a lot of like social signaling in the book, which is something I'm like fascinated with. So with these like good deeds, for example, and let me know if, uh, <laughs> if this path I lay out makes sense, right? So one of one of the you know things that we do when we do good deeds other people see that and in our groups they see oh this is a good person this person's trustworthy okay they're cool like i'll socialize with them right so sometimes like we we want people to see that but uh as you were kind of mentioning like we see people who uh you know point out that someone's only giving you know for this kind of show right to show like hey i am somebody who gives but sometimes that is an intention put on the person like i i love like reading about you know like how good we are at uh detecting deception and it's really hard to judge another person's intentions or motives so i guess the question i'm asking is like how do people give right and get those social points for it so people in the community see hey that's a good trustworthy person without that kind of like i'm only doing it for those social points you know what i mean because uh i see it all the time and you know i uh just the examples that pop off uh pop from the top of my head are like when billionaires give to charities and stuff like that you know and that's a whole different discussion about you know whatever uh <laughs> capitalism but anyways i'm like well you could say that's only for like PR, like for their brand, but how would we know if they're just doing something good? You know what I mean? But if they didn't do that good thing, everybody would say, why don't you give any money to charity? So it seems like a lose-lose in some scenarios. Does all that make sense? Does, yeah. E, you want to go first again? No, you got this one. All right. Um, you know, I, I think 
uh, once again, to kind of point back to earlier in the conversation, uh, we haven't so much emphasized giving people a, a advice here. So we don't really talk about this so much in the book, but I'll pontificate for a minute. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think that um, if you, it's clearly true that sometimes people, people do give in a more, um, uh, in a way that, that at least consciously is less selfish, that, that they're, they're not consciously calculating these reputational benefits. That does seem to happen. Some people seem to be more principled about their giving behavior, seem to more genuinely care in some sense, and, and seem to be kind of less strategic about it. And, and so I, I think part of your question is, given that that exists, how can we kind of cultivate that more or, or, or put ourselves more in that category? And I think, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good question. I'm not fully sure, but some guesses is um, try to develop a little bit of, um, you know, empathy for the actual uh, recipient or for, for, you know, for the cause, read up on them, uh, you know, think about them at, at kind of an emotional level, spend time with them, um, spend time with other people who are devoted to that cause. I think that'll kind of seep into your, your system and uh, it'll get you to kind of care in this genuine sense. Now, at the end of the day, I think that you'll still only kind of do it if you get rewarded for it. So if, if you're, if you feel empathy and that causes you to, to sacrifice a ton for them and you get no positive reinforcement for that, I think you'll, you'll probably, you know, move on. But, but I, I think, you know, you could, you don't necessarily have to consciously think about all those positive rewards. You can just kind of, you know, cultivate that relationship and that empathy and, and try to, try to think about it as an end in itself, try to treat it as kind of a value. Mm. Um, and, and not pay so much attention to, to the social rewards. Even yeah. if, you know, you kind of notice that they're there some of the time and like, you know, leave that out and, and, and think about it as an end in itself. And, you know, I at least try to stop myself. Uh, you know, sometimes you kind of have to be strategic to make sure you don't get taken advantage of or to make sure that you, you can, you know, manage to get a job or to, to, you know, not get fired. And, you know, there are things you have to do in your life to be strategic. But oftentimes I, I try to suppress when I'm being too strategic. I, I try to say mm. like, no, 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 I need to be nice to this person because I care about them. And I, you know, I need to follow this principle because it's just it's kind of a good principle. Um, Mo, and so the thing that stumped me about Chris's question though, is what happens when somebody's trying to paint you as strategic, even if you're not being strategic, that that's mm. where I was a little bit stumped. How do you oh, like, how do you stop that dynamic from, from taking off? Because it seems like the crowd may sometimes have the incentive yeah, to do that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Do you have thoughts on that? No, uh, that's why I was stumped. Um, <laughs> and when, when the question was asked, because it, it feels to me like. I know what somebody who is asking somebody to do good might be able to do here. Yeah. Um, they, they can introduce ways of sort of demonstrating, people demonstrating that genuineness. They can introduce um, more, um, almost more ambiguity around why people are doing stuff in some cases can actually help. So, you know, you, you introduce an excuse for um, uh, um highlighting that somebody has given uh, rather than saying that you're highlighting them in order to recognize them. You have some other reason that you give, maybe it's because you want to try to raise the profile of the organization or something like that, which can also um, make it seem like they're more, um, uh, more genuine so in their just motives. To, uh, but just to clarify the, the argument you're giving, you're saying sometimes when you work with organizations, if they too explicitly highlight their reputational benefits, right. that can backfire. And so you've mm -hmm, worked exactly. out ways to avoid that by kind of giving people an excuse for why they should be, say, sharing on their social media that they give to this charity, which, you know, Perfect. then you yeah, say, exactly. I'm, I'm not just doing it for the reputational benefits, 
you, you, you have on the social media tag, help spread the word to help the charity, you know, post to your Twitter. Um, and that gives them exactly so that they're less open to the criticism that, that uh, Chris is maybe raising. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess, go ahead. Oh, no, no so, that's right. That, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, well, uh, as you guys were talking, I was like, you know what? This is actually about me. Right. So, like, for example, like when I got interested in game theory, uh, so 2019, I'm getting mobbed by the Internet. Um, I started my YouTube channel. I'm like, I'm doing a great thing. Right. Like I am uh, taking extra time to just make videos about, you know, what uh, my experience with mental health, addiction, recovery and uh, what I learned in books. I'm like, I am doing this for free. You click on a YouTube video. Absolutely free. Right. Uh, I started like, you know, little groups where people could talk and share their experiences. I, you know, I would give away my books that I wrote for free. Right. But when the irrational mob came after me, that was then used as to say, he's only doing this to manipulate people into thinking mm. as a, he's a good person, but he's actually a piece of shit. All right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, yeah. this is where I like, look at this and like, uh, you know, the applications for like, daily life because i'm like okay chris the next time this happens what the hell are you supposed to do yeah. right because when you have uh uh you know thousands of strangers saying that you're a terrible person but if you show like hey here's counter evidence to that and then you're you know it's being pointed to as oh that's strategic mm. i'm like oh well i guess i'm screwed right yeah <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? chris I, I do think it's a great question and and, and so Maybe if if you'll let us, we'll we'll entertain it for for a few more minutes. Cause, yeah. Uh, uh, we haven't thought about it before, but uh, I like it. it. Um. So maybe a few more thoughts that come to mind. Um. One of which is that, um, in general, I I think that if you're, I mean, obviously this isn't foolproof, but in general, if you have been non-strategic uh, about these kind of things, the truth will will come out. Uh, in that you'll have friends who will stand up for you. People will, you know, they'll look through like you know, your history and they won't be able to find the goods to, to accuse you of. Um, and, um, you know, to, to some extent, you, you won't even need to defend yourself because your actions, you know, will, will, will speak for themselves. And the accusers will just kind of look weak, you know, they won't have that much ammunition. And like, you know, people will want it. They'll always have an incentive if they don't like what you're doing to, to, to lob grenades in your direction. But like, they'll miss you if, if, if they, um, you know, if you've done a good job at and actually being non-strategic. Um, and then, you know, to the extent, uh, 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 this may very well not fit your case, but in, in some cases, you know, the, the criticisms, there might be some validity to, to the fact that mm -hmm. you have been strategic, in which case, when you get the criticism, you, you know, I, I think in that case too, often, often the best response is to kind of, you know, accept, okay, yes, th that was a bit strategic. And, you know, you kind of like, learn from the negative reinforcement to, to be less strategic in the future. And like, you know, Ooh. people forgive people, 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 uh, um, people move on or, or at least, or, you know, at least if they don't have their own like politicized motives, um, then, you know, they'll realize that you're, you've become less strategic and, and that'll have its own value. But maybe also to be a little bit more concrete on ways that we, um, things that we do that indicate to others that we're less strategic. Because I, I think that that could also help because you can practice these things. One is just, you know, this is going to sound kind of trite, but I think, you know, uh, philosophers like Kant had some key insights here, even if, even if they were thinking uh, it, what we would say in our book very emically, you, you know, they're kind of 
deep into the weeds of the philosophy. I think the picking up on human intuitions quite well, which, you know, one intuition is don't use people, um, which, uh, you know, is, is one formulation of Kant, Kant's categorical imperative. It says, think of people as an ends and not just as a means. And, and I think that's true for, for various principles. Like if you think in that way, I think you're, you're less likely to get criticized for being strategic. So, you know, Ooh. don't think about like, oh, I'm going to help my friends so that they'll help me later. Think, well, this person's my friend. I need to help them. That's the right thing to do. And, and I think like if you practice thinking that way, you'll, you'll be less subject to criticism. Or if you practice thinking, I'm going to post these things to Twitter or share my book because, you know, practice thinking about it in, in terms of a principle because it helps spread knowledge. It helps educate people. Um, uh, you know, those are good things that, that are, you know, we, we think are valuable principles in and of themselves. Um, mm -hmm. and, and if you find yourself thinking about, well, this will help me, you know, get retreats or more followers. I mean, obviously that has some value, even if all you're trying to do is educate it, it helps to have a platform. But, you know, if you find yourself thinking too much about that stuff, then, you know, stop yourself and say, hey, that's not what life's about, or that's not the reputation I want to have, or that, that's not how I want to think of myself. Mm -hmm. Maybe one or two more things that we talk about in our research about what it means to be principled or strategic that, that might help is just um, uh, calculating the costs and benefits. Um, you know, the more you calculate the costs and benefits, that, that's going to make you look more strategic. The more you tell people about your good deeds, that's going to make you look more strategic. You know, the more you let, let people just kind of find out on their own, I think that, that'll look less strategic. And then lastly, I, I, I think, the more consistent you are about it. So uh, the, if you are constantly always following the principle, no matter what, I think that'll really help your case. Whereas, mm. you know, if you kind of sometimes follow it and sometimes don't, uh, that'll, that'll make it much harder to, to, to build up a reputation. Yeah. Those are my final thoughts. Sorry for rambling. Any thoughts on this? No, I, that, I thought that was quite good on the fly. So to summarize, there's sort of three key uh, things to keep in mind. Uh, don't uh, toot your own horn. Um, make sure not to calculate costs and benefits too explicitly. Just kind of do the right thing, um, either based on a gut sense or based on some sort of higher principle and be consistent. So those are the three that Mo highlighted. So, you know, uh, to, to kind of add to that, though, like um, one of the books I love was Susan Cain's book, Quiet, right? Talks about, you know, introverts and all that. And one of the things that she brought up in that book that I was like, hey, that makes sense. Because even though I can like be charismatic in the podcast, I'm pretty introverted. I stick to myself, all that stuff. But she was talking about how like uh, companies often look at extroverts and that's like kind of highlighted. So it does seem like I've worked with these people. I don't know if you two have ever worked with these people, but the ones who do boast about their accomplishments, like I've worked in, you know, uh, places like with a lot of metrics focused things or like sales. And there, there are people who like highlight about that, uh, the, that about themselves regularly. And it seems like they move up the ladder. So it almost seems like them highlighting their accomplishments regularly is getting them attention. Whereas I'm sure a lot of introverts would say like, Hey, I don't do that. And it's kind of screwing me. You know what I mean? So uh, that's where when I look at game theory, because I'm the type of person where I'm like, I wish there was just a, you know, just a standard, right? Where this applies to every situation, but then you see like these contradictions or these exceptions. And I'm curious, like, if, if you have a possible explanation for why that is where it kind of works to their benefit sometimes when they highlight 
what they're doing that's so good. Yeah, sometimes the organizations are making it so that following this advice isn't good advice. Uh, (laughs) They've built the system in a way that kind of rigs it so that you kind of have to say something good about yourself. And if you don't, people infer that you have nothing good to say. Um, And in those kind of contexts, it unfortunately is the case that whereas most of the time not tooting your horn in outside of the workplace might be might be good guidance and people will, will view you as more principled um, within the workplace. If there's an expectation that you toot your own horn when there's something to toot and you don't, people will infer there's nothing there. Um, mm. And so I guess I guess there has to be some nuance as to when to follow this this advice and and don't follow it in those contexts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, pay attention to the norms and expectations. You know, uh, if, the, yeah. if the norm is in a job interview, you you know, in academia, we talk about our publications, we talk about, we, we get references from like, you know, top people in the field. If that's the expectation and you're not doing that, like you send in an empty CV or your CV lists all these bad yeah. things, or you get, you don't bother to get recommendations that are like super, super positive, you know, people people will automatically assume you couldn't. And, and you kind of, yeah, you're, you're then forced to, to, to brag a bit. Um, and, mm. and, and that's right. You do kind of need to pay attention to the expectations and norms. And, and I think to be principled or to be, be seen as principled, you kind of just, um, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a balancing act. Um, you don't, you don't want to do, uh, you don't want to be so much more humble uh, than is expected um, uh, or else, yeah, you'll never, you'll never get out there. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you do need to pay attention to the notes. But maybe, maybe let me add one more thing to what Aries w- w- was saying, which is um, uh, separate from this issue of in some context, there are, there are different norms and you need to be attentive to that. I think the game theory really does highlight the costs and benefits that are at play. And, and it does this a lot. So, so we think oftentimes, there, like you're saying, there's kind of contradictory advice out there. You know, it's good to be humble or, 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 or it's, good, it's good to um, be assertive. And like that kind of sounds somewhat contradictory and like it's not so obvious when to apply one advice versus another. And, and, and you know, in, in like the self-help literature or in a lot of like pop psychology, you know, it, it really does sound somewhat contradictory. And I think what we would say is like the game theory and thinking through incentives can, you know, can tell you about the costs and benefits, which won't necessarily tell you what to do all the time. In fact, it, it almost by definition won't do that, but mm. it'll tell you the kinds of things that are, that are pertinent that you should take into account. And so when it comes to like, being humble or, 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 or in some sense introverted, uh, uh, like it says, well, there's going to be a benefit of brag, namely people will more readily learn about all these positive traits and good deeds. And, and it's more likely people will find out about those things. And, but when they do find out, they'll assume, uh, well, you kind of felt a need to brag about it. Uh, they'll assume that you're kind of less principled about it. And, and so, so that's the cost. And so if you're introverted and you, or, or, or if you're more humble about it, yes, fewer people will find out, but those that do will respect you more and think higher of you. And so yeah. that's kind of the trade-off. And that, it kind of depends how much you, you care about those two things. So if your sole job really requires that you have a huge audience, but doesn't really matter that, uh, you know, that audience just kind of needs to know about your good deeds um, or, or about your accomplishments, then bragging is like kind of essential. But if you really want just like a select few uh, to really respect you, Bragging isn't going to do the trick. Um, in that case, you kind of you you want to you know let those people find out about you and uh, let your actions speak for themselves, and then they'll, they'll they'll respect you a lot more. And that's kind of the trade-off, I think. 
Yeah, no, that, that you, you both just nailed it. And that's kind of, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm going through my experience, like that makes sense. And sometimes I feel like I over uh, analyze things, but I'm looking at those cost benefits, like, you know, uh, like in order to, you know, like I got a kid to feed, right? So in order to get raises and support my son, I got to highlight, you know, some of my, you know, accomplishments, but maybe my coworker is like, oh, look at this guy, just brag it. And I'm like, okay, well, which one's more important, me feeding my son or my coworker not? <laughs> you know, thinking that I'm not principled, but you know, that I could prove to them in other ways. But um, you know, uh one one thing I, I, I wanted to ask you guys too is, you know, like game theory research has been going on for, you know, uh so long now. And we've just seen in the last, you know, decade, a little longer, this rise in like social media. We have a lot of technology. Like, do do you think that technology has changed game theory at all? Or do you see a lot of the same? you know, uh, aspects just playing a role with social media. Like, for example, like I loved your guys chapter on like norm reinforcement and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when I log into Twitter and I try to ignore it while also keeping an eye on it, it seems like people are rewarded for like being a dick. You know what I mean? And there's like certain things. So I'm like, I'm like, do we need like new theories? Is there like new research that needs to come out and see how, you know, things are going on now that social media is such a huge part of our lives, you know? You want to go first again? You want me to go? Sure. I can try. Um, I think that as technologies change, they introduce new variables that you uh, want to take into account. So for instance, a classic example, this isn't something from, from our book's um, domain, but a classic example is something like Yelp, where people talk about how Yelp changed Main Street. And the, the fact that you now had these reputation systems mm. where a, a meal, a bad meal had a lasting effect on your reputation suddenly as someone in a, in a tourist district meant that those tourist districts really remade themselves and, and the businesses that survived actually served good food. And there's something similar in, in our domains as well going on with social media in that things that before maybe would have been just forgotten, lost that you said there's a record of it. And so now, now, you know, that that's going to have a lasting effect on your reputation potentially. Uh, and on the other hand, there are ways in which before everything you said, people would, the people around you would be able to attribute to you, but now you can become anonymous and mm. truly anonymous in ways that weren't possible before. And that also changes things. And so when it comes to, for instance, the, the, the norm stuff, you might want to think about the technology as both in some senses, increasing the observability of certain actions, which might have uh, the effect that it might make you more careful or more pro-social over time. It also has the ability of making people more anonymous, which would work in the other direction and so on. And so I, I think that when you're thinking about technology, you can often take the existing game theory framework. You know, we know observability is important for promoting pro-social behavior. That's what I'm referring to here. And uh, now you think, okay, is the technology increasing it here? Is it decreasing it here? And, and so on. So, so some of the time, that's how I, I'm thinking about it. Mo, what do you have? Uh... Well, yeah, I, I like that point. Um, I, I think uh, technology does alter the incentive structure and the information structure, how information is spread and shared. Um, and game theory is a tool to analyze you know, what's the optimal behavior given an incentive and information structure. Mm. And so I think that that tool can still be applied in these different settings, but you might want to, you know, uh, use a slightly different game theory model or, 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 or um, you know, it, it might cause you to, to apply game theory in a slightly different way. But, but I think game theory at its core is still going to be quite personal. 
maybe I'll highlight kind of more concretely, like I, I like Aaron's Yelp example. I do think that oftentimes new technology totally changes um, uh, both incentives and information in quite interesting ways. Uh, so I don't know, we, um, we, we've both read uh, quite a bit, both on the American New Evolution and the Protestant Reformation. And those were, those were two cases where the printing press played a huge role. Um, it, it, the printing press in, in the American Revolution shifted power towards uh, the revolutionaries and, and uh, towards uh, later the, the Federalists who wanted to set up a strong federal government because they were the ones who coincidentally controlled the printing presses. Um, and that gave them a lot of power to control the spread of information, to control the norms. Uh, you know, they could print the names of all the people who weren't boycotting British goods, for instance. Um, or like this one speech that was read in like one state house could very, very quickly be printed in all the colonies. And, and so that really gave them an informational edge um, in, in the Revolutionary War. And later, when there was a big debate about how strong the U.S. government should be, um, uh, again, the people with the printing presses won. Um, and, you know, likewise with the Protestant Reformation, like many historians think, the, the fact that there was a printing press really helped Martin Luther. Like, you know, his ideas could only spread so far without that. And so, you know, it really changes the power dynamic. And oftentimes, you know, maybe it's not so obvious who it goes with, because in one sense, it gives power to whoever owns the printer. But in another sense, it also means that people can spread their voices kind of far wider. And so, you know, if the, the Catholic Church or the monarchy doesn't want those voices heard, so long as there are somebody else owns the printers, those voices will still get out. And, and I think there's kind of a, a similar dynamic in, in you know, with, with issues like cancel culture right now, where, you know, there's, there's both, uh, yeah, there's some interesting going on with how power is shifting. You know, one way in which is shifting, it's marginalized communities, um, like people who are LGBT or, or people who are minorities or, or people who aren't that wealthy. Well, they can still have Twitter handles and they could still make their voices heard in a way that in the past you kind of needed to have uh, the ability to publish in the New York Times or to like, you, you know, ha have a press secretary um, uh, uh, in, in order to have your voice heard. You know, uh, for instance, the police, people often talk about this when it comes to Black Lives, Ma Black Lives Matter, the police always had the ability to hold a press conference and they always mm. had the ability to pitch stories to the New York Times or the LA Times. But it wasn't often that Black victims could. And now they can post videos to Twitter. And so that's, that's going to shift the balance of power quite, quite a bit in favor of marginalized communities. But on the other hand, um, you, you know, it can also shift the power just in terms of numbers. It can, it can shift the power um, in various other ways. One other way it shifts the power is, well, it could still be the case that the person who owns the platform, now they have a huge amount of power. Or, you know, if you run Fox News, that gives you a ton of power. Um, and, and so you know, it shifts powers in, in interesting ways. And the, the game theory might highlight like what's the benefit of having, you know, the ability to post videos to Twitter that are undeniable. It might tell you the benefit of being able to spread disinformation or, or controlling norms or censor people who, who don't um, boycott British products. So it'll highlight those costs and benefits. But I think you, you kind of need to know the a bit more about the technology to know how it's going to shape the incentives and information. Yeah. And, you know, um, a couple more questions and it's kind of like a big question and you know i'm gonna get a little, a little you know into the political realm for a second but uh when, when we're talking about social media like what just came to mind as you both were talking was this big story this week uh about 
uh, a reporter, Taylor Lorenz, exposing the name of libs of TikTok. And I've seen how social media has just amplified the voice of this anonymous account, right? And then, you know, obviously the name came up. But anyways, there's a lot, there's a lot going on just in, I look in the last year with just like moral panics coming from, you know, uh, uh, you know, just like these conversations about race or the LGBT community. Uh, and I'm like, how do we counteract that? Right. And that's another reason I look to game theory because I'm like, can like, you know, people trying to fight against this, like libs of TikTok, what they're spreading. Like I just watched them gain 300,000 more followers this week after that story broke. Right. And I'm sitting here like, how do you counteract that? What can people learn from game theory to try to figure out a way to do this? And especially with social media being what's spreading information, misinformation, moral panics, all these other things, because people's lives are getting affected. So like, I'm like, hey, maybe you can read a, a book, learn a little bit about human behavior, how these things work, and maybe figure something out because it seems like lives are like in jeopardy because of some of this stuff, you know? Just to clarify, Chris, before we respond, when you say counteract that, you mean counteract like the spread of fake news you you mean counteract like the mob mobbing behavior like yeah count well counteract uh you know uh i'll use libs of tiktok for example she uh is cherry picking uh you know tiktok videos targeting the lgbtq community before oh, that it was uh -huh. the black community when they were going after crt now it's influencing politics like you see people referencing it uh even conspiracy theories entering like <laughs> uh, rooms where you know senators are speaking and it's absolutely bonkers yeah. but they're getting so so much uh you know in the realm of retweets shares uh their their follower count which people look to as like oh well this must be a credible source since a lot of other people follow it so activists who are trying to fight against libs of tiktok and what they're doing what yeah. can they learn from game theory to hope to maybe do something about it you want to go first here? No, <laughs> no, this is too hard a problem. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I agree with Ian in a large sense. I'll still take a stab at it, but let me agree with him first and highlight how hard of a problem it is. Um, uh, I, I really do think, uh, you know, A, on the one hand, I was mentioned before, like modern technology does give a voice to, to marginalized communities. But but I also alluded to the fact that there are huge, um, huge propaganda machines that have been built up that have a ton of power and yeah. have a ton of money pumped into them. You know, Fox News is is, is not weak, and they have yeah. they have a huge voice to influence uh, the vote and influence what a huge fraction of the American population believes. And it's it's not trivial to counteract that. And my sense is like the Dems are almost powerless at, at this propaganda game. They they really don't don't know. There's nothing on the Democratic side that could even compete with shaping the narrative, and and they seem to be kind of feeling that. And and it's it's really not obvious, you know, how to build something even comparable or, or how to combat this, this machine. Um, you know, we read, we talk a lot about dark money, this, this nice book, but by, by, by Jane Mayer or Myra, I, I might be mispronouncing one of the two. Um, but, but, uh, it, you know, it goes through how the Cokes and this other, this network of billionaires yeah. really spent decades building up, you know, separate from Fox, uh, a, a propaganda machine, you know, they're, they're finding think tanks, they're finding um, speakers and conferences. They, they find academics and, and academic departments to kind of really shape the narrative around climate change. And, and uh, again, like that's a huge machine that they've spent decades on. They, they're shaping the narrative 
about libertarianism and, and, and limited government. And, you know, they have they have a huge say in what people believe. And, you know, individuals can only do so much to cut out this mm. stuff. And I, I, my sense is the CRT stuff, um, you know, I guess I haven't read too much into the details or maybe it's not yet fully known how this stuff is spreading, but it's a machine. Like, like it's not just yeah. like some individual is independently thinking this stuff up. Um, and, you know, there, there, there are tens of millions of dollars, a lot of, a lot of really smart people planning out creating this CRT panic. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's a non-trivial it's a non-trivial problem. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the yeah things that I've noticed. It's like a system, right? It's not just you could take out you know this one aspect. It's like a lot of things moving together, and it's why I encourage people to like stay informed, look into politics, policy changes, and stuff yeah. like that. Like I'm I'm always on the fence about you know regulating the social media platforms, how that would be done, and you know whatever. But um, but let me let me wrap up with this because uh, I have not yet had a chance to read your political piece. But the Russian-Ukraine war has been going on, you know, for a month, a little over a month now, and I do see people like, "Hey, we need to go in there and we need to like start a war with Russia, right?" And others are, you know, they were like doing sanctions and things like that. So, can you guys kind of discuss like some or some like highlights to? Uh, uh, your political piece so like people can better understand what's going on or possible moves that might be coming in the future sure um i think the game theory here has kind of three sets of insights that we've thought of at least so far one is the one that we highlighted in the political piece which is what's the role of sanctions you, you know you, you look at the situation you think it this ship has sailed this guy he's he's already in there what we do now is not going to change that. Uh, maybe we shouldn't go through with, with sanctioning because it's pretty costly to us. It, there's lots of Russians who aren't at fault who are being harmed by it. Like, why, why are we doing this? But what the game theory teaches you is that it's not really about this situation. It's more about sustaining norms against um, incursions into neighboring territories and so on. So, you know, national sovereignty needs to be protected. And, and if you, if you, uh, are looking at it in the context of a longer, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. How do we protect the norm um, to uh, um, respect national sovereignty? Then, then um, this makes more sense. And and the sanctions are really important for that. So that's that's what the political peace focuses on. There's two other things that Mo and I have talked about um, that we think that the game theory helps clarify. One is the importance of red lines. Um, in the book, there's a chapter on categorical norms, which talks about how norms tend to have this feature that they, they're conditioned on categorical variables as opposed to continuous ones. So, so to be concrete about this, you could imagine deciding how much rights somebody gets based on their level of sentience or their ability to feel pain, which are continuous variables. You can do more or less of them, but we don't really do that. Instead, we, we condition our, our sense of rights on category membership. Are you a human or not? Uh, are you a member of the, of the um, species Homo sapien? Um, we do that in other uh, um, places too. So for instance, when it comes to murder, we don't think about how many years of life this person had left. Or again, we don't think about, you know, are they conscious or something mm. like that? But rather we think about like, did you stop their heart, which is a categorical variable. 
So, so our morality tends to have this feature. The same is going to be true in, in this context with, um, with uh, an international dispute. There are certain red lines which are, are categorical. You can't use chemical weapons. You can't use nuclear weapons. It's a category of weapon. And what the game theory shows us is the reason that we tend to, in general, rely on these categories is because it's a lot easier in, in these yeah. contexts where you have to sustain norms to condition them on categorical variables as opposed to continuous ones, and the continuous ones tend to just unravel. And, and there's a real risk here that if we allow small breaches of these categorical variables, like, for instance, the use of tactical nuclear weapons, oh, it was just a small nuke and it was, you yeah. know, nobody was actually hurt here. That that will very quickly unravel and and cause um, us to to find ourselves in full scale nuclear war and and that's also highlighting the danger of even having small breaches. So the the very ability of somebody to use a tactical weapon, the very existence of these weapons, is dangerous. So that's the second insight that we've discussed, and the third one that's come up is around indirect warfare. So um, there's been a lot of emphasis on the fact that. We can help Ukraine, but not too directly. We can give them planes, we can't fly them. We can give them weapons, we can't shoot them. Um, and that seems a little counterintuitive. Like, why, why, if we're already helping them, might as well just help them, right? Yeah. But, but that, it doesn't work that way. And it turns out, again, it's a little bit like this red line. Like, as soon as you cross the line into direct help, then suddenly you're going to very quickly snowball into a full on confrontation, which is very, very risky. Um, but uh, as long as you stay in this indirect well realm, there, there, there's a, a big benefit of staying in an indirect realm, which can sometimes hamper you, uh, but but will be effective at preventing one uh, one, uh, one thing that we scale. one thing that we talk about in in the chapter on justice is um, this idea that once you attack someone, that there kind of is like a necessity to retaliate, and and like mm. they're almost forced to. Um, but if you attack them in a way that's kind of got plausible deniability they can even benefit from pretending like it's not happening because they yeah. don't want to have to have a, a costly escalation. And so, so if we helped Ukraine by like flying our own fighter planes in there, um, like it would force Russia's hand. Whereas if we do it by just handing over weapons, you know, Russia can, can, you know, there's some plausible deniability about, about to what extent we're actually at war with Russia. And that, that allows Russia to also save face and not, responding and retaliating and escalating, which clearly nobody wants. Uh, even, even Putin doesn't want a war with NATO. Um, and so, so this kind of indirect warfare allows us to, to help without uh, forcing Putin to, to retaliate. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's uh, like people suggesting things like that. I need to go check out your piece. Like that seems like what makes the most sense because I'm like, you know, how can we have like plausible deniability or how can we exit this thing and he could save face or, you know, all these other things that I think some people aren't taking into consideration. But, but yeah, you guys are amazing. I love the book. I learned a ton. Uh, and I'm probably going to go back through and read it again at some point, just let some stuff sink in. But um, for everybody out there who is like, these guys are talking about some interesting stuff and researching cool things. Where can they find both of you? And where's the book? Is it everywhere? Is it having a separate release in other countries? Lay it on me. Well, uh, Amazon, at least in, in the US and the UK, are selling the book. Uh, I guess we're not sure where else it's available, but, but you can always buy it from those countries and have it shipped. Um, if you have a tough time finding it in your country, uh, you know, uh, send us a message. Best way to, to message us, we're both pretty active on Twitter. I'm at... Moshe underscore Hoffman and uh, Ares is at Ares Yoeli, no underscore. Um, e e R E Z 
Y O E L I, um, M O S H E, uh, underscore H O F F M A N. If you, you know, uh, tag us on Twitter, we'll, we'll notice. Um, and, um, yeah, feel free to reach out. Feel free to ask more questions. Uh, we'd, we'd love to continue this discussion. And if, if you're a fan of local bookstores and yours doesn't carry it, you'll be doing us a favor by asking them to. I love it. Great suggestion. So I'm going to link uh, that stuff down below as well as uh, your Twitters and the political piece. I'll put that, that down there so people can check it out. But again, guys, thanks so much. And yeah, hit me up when you write the next book. All right. Awesome. Deal. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I, I really, really found this one interesting because this is like a concept that's been like difficult for me to like learn about for a while, but they did an amazing job with the book, but this conversation enlightened me even more. So I hope you, you gained something and it made you interested to go check out and read this book and learn a little bit more about game theory, because when we, when we understand this, we understand even more about tribalism as well as like individual behaviors you know what i mean and it'll help us kind of understand and, and see the world through a different lens when we're when we're trying to assess is this person a friend a foe right and even though i think that you know all of us can somehow find a way to coexist sometimes there are people with bad intentions and it's good to kind of think about these different aspects of game theory and how we evolved you know, to do these types of things. So anyways, uh, make sure you head down to the description, make sure you follow uh, Mo and Arez over on Twitter, and most importantly, grab a copy of their brand new book, Hidden Games, okay? But before I let you go, uh, again, if you haven't yet, make sure you are following and subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you are following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. You can also follow me over on uh, TikTok and YouTube. It's The Rewired Soul over there as well. And a couple of quick things that you could do to help support the podcast. The first two things, absolutely free. One of them, you found this interesting, make sure you share it. Share it with your friends, your family members, hop on social media, share this episode, get the word out there. All right. Second thing, head over to Apple podcast. Takes like one minute, go down there, do a little rating, leave a review helps out a ton. Not only does it spread the word, but the algorithms love that stuff. So it helps me out a ton and I appreciate it. All right. But some other ways you can help support the podcast. One of them become a paid subscriber over on Substack. It's either five bucks a month or $50 for the year. That's linked down in the description below. And, and on top of that, when you become a paid subscriber, you get all of the regular episodes like this one a day early. So some of you are benefiting from listening to this a day early. So if you'd like to get in on that, support the podcast a little bit, uh, go subscribe over on Substack. Some other things you can do, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com. I have written a few books myself. They're available over there. And lastly, lastly, uh, you know, speaking of getting canceled, something that helped me out a ton and continues to help me out with my mental health is therapy. So down in the description below, there is a link, uh, an affiliate link to BetterHelp Online Therapy. If you you don't know what it is, it's it's affordable. It's online. You work with a licensed therapist. And what I loved about it was it, it was super convenient. But there's also a, a lot of other great things about it. Uh, the way you kind of fill out your profile and it helps you find the right therapist. So like if you're dealing with depression, you find somebody who like specializes in that or anxiety. Or if you're dealing with like trauma, you know, all these different things. And you can... Fill that out on your profile. It'll filter out the therapist. And if you don't like your therapist, just a click of the button, you find a new one. Super simple. All right. So if you're interested in checking that out, head down to the description, 
and click on that affiliate link. All right. So another huge, huge thanks to Mo and Arez for coming on the podcast to discuss their book. Uh, make sure you follow them, grab a copy of their book, Hidden Games. It is out now. And yeah, for all of you, I will be back next week with uh, one or two episodes. I'm kind of getting caught up. I, I've recorded a bunch of episodes, some really cool guests, but some of them, uh, the books aren't coming out for a few weeks, so I might hold on to them. But anyways, anyways, until then, have an amazing rest of your day, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>